0: Welcome to Bookish Bethel. I'm Carrie Pethley in the philosophy department and joining me is
1: Anne-Marie Koistra in the history department.
0: And today our guest is Ruchika Haig, one of our fellow humanities professors, and she's going to be talking a little bit about her own historical and intellectual biography, as well as what she would propose to add to our humanities curriculum.
1: Rushika, thanks for joining us today. And, um, you know, you've got kind of an interesting trajectory. Um, and, and so I'm wondering, um, by way of starting us off today, could you just share some of the like five little known facts about Rushika Haag and her voyage to Bethel University and the humanities program? Um, wow.
2: <laughs> Um, can I start with the, I know how to prime a pump? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, my husband and I were talking the other day and, and I said, I really feel like, you know, people need to, sounds terrible, need to have spent some time in their lives where they lived in a house without running water or something along those lines to really appreciate certain things. And so um, at one point, so my mother grew up in the upper peninsula of Michigan, actually in a house that didn't have indoor plumbing, at least for the first part of her life, Um, and then at one point, we moved back up there to a ramshackle, literally tar paper cabin that my grandfather had built, and it had electricity, but no running water, and so if you wanted to do certain things, you had to go and prime the pump. I think I was, I guess I was seven. I thought it was amazing. I thought I was Laura Ingalls Wilder, basically. I was like, this is wonderful. I like spent my days wandering around in my sunbonnet, carrying like lugging a wagon with water behind me. Ugh. And I thought it was charming, but, um, but I, I realized that this is not a typical um, experience, but you know, I mean, it's not that hard to prime a pump. You just need to have some, bu- some form of water, a bucket of water, and you just keep pouring water into the pump until it sort of start and pumping the handle till it starts going. So many, many years later, um, my mother was living in Appleton, Wisconsin, and had met someone at Lawrence University there, and had was had her over for dinner when I was there home from college. And she was this this lovely African American woman from the South, who because of teaching position had ended up in Appleton, Wisconsin, and was, you know, <laughs> kind of like, wow, how did I get here? Anyway, so we had a lovely bonding moment um, because she also grew up in a house without running water. So we had this lovely bonding moment about knowing how to prime pumps. Oh. I, I guess that's my my first. Um, Strange story, but I mean, I think it was really important. I actually turn on the water when I turn it on, and every day I think this is pretty amazing. It's kind of a miracle, nice. water comes from faucet. So I don't know if that was where you were headed with that, but this is a story I've been thinking about. Well, and
1: Ruchika, if I can um, intervene, certain things that mm-hmm. I learned about you that I was surprised to learn was that um, obviously we are able to speak English, but you actually know several languages
2: is this true i mean yes i used to be better than i am right now but i mean i can read a lot of things i can read latin and um italian and french and if you really really forced me to i could drag out some german um what else do i know oh spanish spanish and did you big smatterings of those things. That, and that seems like a lot to me. And then I think too, for a
1: part of your life, I mean, part of your life, you're in the Upper Peninsula um, playing Laura Ingalls Wilder, but for another part of your life, did you spend some time in the Netherlands?
2: Yeah, I was actually b- born in the Netherlands. Um, in a little town called Alphen on the Rhine, um, on the Rhine River, uh, mm-hmm. just uh, outside of Leiden. Where my father was a professor of African literature, and so um, do you want? Do you want the story? The whole, I'll give you the story. Why yeah. not? Let's hear the story. My father um, was from South Africa. He was um, a Cape colored um, from Cape Town, actually born just outside of Cape Town, and basically that's the population that's like incredibly, extremely mixed. So. Um, The joke is, you know, the Dutch landed and nine months later, the Cape colored population was born. Wow. Great joke. Um, So, you know, there's Indian and Asian and, you know, the native population there and some Dutch and a little bit of French and, and um, so, you know, a very, very mixed population there. So um, he um, ended up in Holland um, for his PhD and also because he had to leave the country Um, because of his anti-apartheid activities. Mm -hmm. And um, his cousin was very involved um, and he was uh, the the first cape-colored person to join the militant arm of the ANC. Mm. And um, shortly after he left the country, most of his friends were arrested. So um, he ended up first in England and then in um, Holland at the University of Leiden to get his PhD. Um, and then one summer he uh, went to, there's an international school in Oslo, Norway, and um, which draws people from all over the world and they spend a summer in Norway and learn some Norwegian and Norwegian history and, and meet people from all over and, and you know, sort of explore Norway. And my mother had heard about it and had always wanted to do this. So she also was attending this school. Um, At the time, she was an art teacher. And so this was in the the summer. And she was in Michigan. And um, my parents, according to both of them, and they both have poems written about this, met each other. Everyone said, oh, you have to meet each other. You'll just, we'll love each other. And they met each other, hated each other on sight. At least that's what they claim. And then, but you know, one thing and another, and the next thing you know, he's followed her down to the lake and is reading her Chaucer. And um, I, as they say, the rest is history. Um, So she came back here to teach. She went back to finish up his degree. Uh, They wrote letters back and forth. She went to see him at Christmas and then um, packed up all her things and moved, Across an ocean to be with him, they got married in London or just outside of London, and um, and settled down in in uh, Holland. And uh, he had a teaching position at the University of Leiden, and then I came along.
0: Nice. So I until I was five. Wow! Did you know that story, Carrie? No, I like okay. I knew where your parents were from, but I did not know the Norway story. So, how they met? What a meet, cute! Oh my goodness! Well, and that's yeah. um, that's a great
1: lead-in to um, Abelard and Heloise, maybe, because that's kind of sure a romantic story. Although it's it's it doesn't have maybe as nice of an ending.
2: Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, th- there is a child with an unusual name, so I guess there's that parallel. Okay. <laughs> so so ruchika um
1: part of what we've been doing this semester is um not only getting to know fun people um like you like samuel um but also kind of proposing what we might include in humanities if we had more time and the chance to do um other things and so i think you were the one who proposed let's you know think let's talk about maybe the possibility of peter Abler. i'm sure that most people don't necessarily know much about him and the story of him and Heloise. So maybe you could start by just telling that story a little bit.
2: So we're in 12th century Paris and the universities are buzzing and growing and this new philosophy, and I'll probably defer to carry on some of this, um, has come into the universities and Aristotle has been rediscovered. And I don't think uh, exaggeration to say that this was an absolute revolution. This was the most exciting thing going on in the universities, very controversial, very cutting edge. And so Abelard is part of this, um, these professors who are embracing the new learning. And he's really at the forefront of this. And he was by all accounts, brilliant, fairly rather charismatic Mm -hmm. he was kind of a rock star Um, when he would lecture students would crowd into the halls outside the lecture hall um, just to you know try to hear a glimpse of his brilliance Um, so you know he's kind of amazing right and and the kind of um, you know Bethel professors can just dream right (laughs) 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 being so so um students hanging on our every word. This is mm-hmm. humanities professor's dream, right?
0: <laughs> yes, waiting outside of CC 313, hoping they can hear what we're lecturing on.
2: Right, exactly. I mean, not that I'm saying that, that doesn't happen here. <laughs> but you never know. Um, yeah, so so this is, this is Abelard. And um, so he, he's, you know, really well known. His reputation is spread everywhere. Um, I think Carrie, we had previously talked uh, at some point, I don't know, on this or just in in passing about the fact that, I mean, initially he's working with just scraps of Aristotle. And so he doesn't even have what comes in, you know, a few years after. Yeah,
0: he's he's at the very early, early end of the translation movement where they're getting little bits and pieces and they're not necessarily great translations yet, nor nor are they complete. But he's. Um, he's getting some of it.
2: Yeah, so he he has this book. It's called Siket Non*, um, yes and no, and he uses Aristot- the Aristotelian method to go through and discuss different questions of theology mostly theology, but also philosophy, a little natural history, and so you know you have a little proposal, and then you you come up with you know different arguments for and against it, and and so this is this is a big thing. Um, so, but. Then we have Eloise. Um, Eloise is also absolutely brilliant. Um, Not much known about her family, some speculation about that. But where we do pick up the story, we know she's somewhere between 15 and her early 20s. Hard to know exactly. She's described as a young woman, an adolescent. But um, we're not quite sure what that means exactly. And she's very well educated. She started writing things. She's really well known. Um, Peter of Cluny, the Abbot of Cluny, um, known as Peter the Venerable knows of her. And we have a a little bit of correspondence between the two of them. And so she is in Paris staying with her uncle who is a canon of the church. And um, we're not sure about the details, but, he works out a deal with Abelard and says, will you tutor my brilliant young niece, and then you can stay with us, um, you know, sort of a trade tutoring for room and board. Um, well, you know, one thing leads to another, all the time spent together discussing Aristotle is very, um, you know, steamy, apparently. It's an act really. I was going to say stimulating, but, you know. (laughs) Yes, also that. So one thing leads to another, and they fall madly in love and embark upon an affair. Oh, dear. Yes, these, yeah. And, of course, inevitably, she becomes pregnant. And so, you know, she, she goes away and has a boy who she names Astrolabe. Um, which is a medieval navigational instrument, Um, because, you know, why not?
0: I once read something
2: that said, this is why academics shouldn't be allowed to name their children. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, and they are secretly married. Um, Her uncle finds out. sort of dismayed about everything that's gone on and sends his thugs to um attack and unfortunately castrate abelard um and we know about this from his his he writes a story about sort of an autobiography his calamitous history wow yeah so this is um wow i did not
1: realize that i'm just gonna put that out there um being the non-medievalist in the room um is i mean everybody's going to want to know. I, I feel like if I want to know, people want to know, like how much detail does he go into about this whole experience or is it kind of a veiled reference? I mean, I'm just, oh. um, I
0: mean, <laughs> it's, it's veiled in certain ways. Like as he describes their, their affair, I mean, it's a, it's a little bit like, and our, our, you know, poetry sessions ended in, Love and I mean, nice. so he, he puts it in these beautiful ways, but then he's really clear that he is castrated by okay. golds thugs. Yeah. Okay. And,
2: and and this is known by everyone too. I mean, wow. like, yeah. Um, so uh, Abelard re- retreats to a monastery, and so does Eloise uh, eventually too, because she she doesn't have a lot of options at this point. Sure. Um, she ends up as abbess of of her convent. And they have these letters that they write back and forth. And they're, they're kind of fascinating. Uh, very erudite. I mean, they are still talking about philosophy. And, and then she asks him advice about her nuns. Yeah. And, um, but I guess the thing that I always find interesting about it is that she's sort of in many ways unrepentant about the whole affair Mm. and she still has you know it it seems to have this great love for him and he does at that point seem to just try to distance himself a little bit Mm. Um, but you know I mean he has gone through a major trauma so maybe that's what it is but um but it's sort of an interesting um view into um, this really dynamic relationship between these two brilliant, larger than life people. Hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. I of course wonder, so what happens to Astrolabe?
2: Um, Not quite sure. There are a few references later on to him. Um, They kind of lose track of him probably when he's in his twenties or something. it's, it's not, he's a little hard to trace. Okay. Um, He is raised by um, Abelard's sister. Oh, interesting. Okay. And so part of the reason I think that
1: this, um, this came up was because Jen McNabb had proposed that we read The Wife of Bath. And you were thinking, well, that's great, except it's also a little racy. And then that got you thinking about it sounds, on the face of it, also a little racy, quite honestly. But it, it is. <laughs> so, what would you? So, what would you have us read, and what do you think that it would serve students in the program?
2: Well, the the letters, they're letters, okay. um, and their letters actually aren't that racy. It's a lot of you know discussions of you know what we should do with my nuns. Will you will you write a rule for my nuns? Um, you know, s- still some philosophy, um, different ideas about love and friendship. And so it- it's sort of this interesting, like way of viewing this part of the medieval world, uh-huh. and, and you know, this very interesting relationship that these two
0: have.: mm-hmm. And can carry- as well? because yeah, you, c- you could read Abelard's works many of which are dry. And we could talk about his theories of atonement because he had really interesting theories of atonement, Mm -hmm. but those letters would be such a fascinating and complete change of pace Mm -hmm. um, for for students to see, um, number one, I think a woman's voice, right? That a woman is in this conversation about love and friendship and philosophy and Aristotle, Mm -hmm. Um, but also then just this more relational um, approach into the middle ages.
1: Well, it seems like it could serve as a potential complement to the Julian of Norwich reading because Julian is thinking through um, intellectual issues, but sort of does that with the approach of withdrawing from everything. And I kind of get the impression, just the way that you're talking about these letters, that it's almost as if you can hear these folks talking out loud, talking out loud and talking themselves through some of the ideas that they 're thinking about, which i that seems like like great fun
0: mm-hmm. yeah, you could also have bits of well though this would be very racy then the, his his calamitous history where he actually describes that because it 's really kind of fun to get Abelard talking about himself like he seems in that in that um, history autobiography, he seems a little bit cocky. Um, and so he's describing himself as like all oh, the ladies loved me so much. everybody was into me, but there was this one fine young thing that I liked more than anybody else. <laughs> <It's> super entertaining <sighs>
2: mm-hmm. But I think the other thing is, I mean, it, it, that's fascinating is that it's clearly this meeting of minds,
1: mm-hmm.
2: two of them that I mean, you know she can she can hold her own with him. Mm-hmm. And- he may be all the talk of Paris, but I mean, she so is she. I mean, and I think that's the other thing that would be interesting with the contrast with Julian is that, you know, Julian says that she's unlettered mm-hmm. and that doesn't have much of an education. And when you read through, it's sort of fascinating to try because she makes references to Bible stories, but they're very um, I mean, the, she can't quote chapter and verse clearly. And I mean, she knows them. She's heard about them in some sort of sermon, but she's not, I mean, she doesn't have all the fine details down. And then you contrast that with Eloise, who is just an intellectual powerhouse and incredibly educated. And uh, it just gives, I think, gives you maybe a rounder picture. Though, I mean, Eloise is exceptional, but um, maybe not as unique as we might think. I mean, there are plenty of other medieval women who are, you know, very well educated and writing some pretty amazing things. hmm
0: Yeah. I mean, going just a little bit, um, like not too far um, in time is Hilde- Hildegard of Bingen, who's writing amazing stuff on math and music and philosophy and medicine. So, um, and obviously, Eloise was allowed to be educated. So it was happening.
1: Ah, very interesting. Um, one of the other things that I think Carrie and I wanted to um, talk about, too, is um, you're currently writing your dissertation, Rushika.
2: Yes, in theory, I am doing that. <laughs> and I know that
1: um, we would be interested in hearing a little bit about um, what you're working on? What What are you studying? What are you What are you writing about? All
2: right. So I am looking at a late medieval portolan chart and a portolan chart sort of. It's It's basically um, a map of the Mediterranean is the focus of it, and it has some distinctive features. Um, it is unlike other med- medieval maps in that the focus is really the Mediterranean. Um, all the the names of major ports are sort of along the margins of the outlines of the country. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that fascinates people about them is that the outlines of the Mediterranean are so accurate mm-hmm. that they really don't have maps made with modern technology that accurate until you know several centuries later. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the big questions: How do they have? Mm-hmm so accurate with, medieval tools, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they're usually done on, um, like an animal hide. Um, and, um, there's not a ton of detail in the center, but there are some interesting images that they, that different maps have. And, um, this one is made by a Genoese mapmaker and he's clearly very proud of being Genoese because he writes it. Um, there's, two Portolans we know of from him. And he writes it very large on both of them that, you know, I am um, Albino de Canepa, and I made this, and I'm Genoese, and I made this in Genoa. And so he has a lot of Genoese pride. And so um, Genoa, of course, is prominent on on the chart and just a little bit, well, quite a bit smaller next to Genoa, we have their rival Venice. (laughs) Wants to show that, yes, the Genoese are the best. Um, and one of the intriguing things of this, the one I'm looking at is that um, around the Black Sea where the Genoese had a lot of trading posts and did a lot of trade, um, there are all these little Genoese flags sort of dotting, um, sort of surrounding the Black Sea and showing different ports where yeah. they traded. Yeah. And so, um, it's, I don't know, maps are fascinating. There's a lot you need to sort of pull out about it interpretation to, to look at it um, and sort of try and see why the map maker is, is making the choices he's making. What, what is he doing? What is he trying to say? Um, is this something that was actually and most people seem to think the ones like these that were very large and elaborate were not taken on board ship and used for navigation that they were more decorative um, mm-hmm. and as commemorative maps possibly um so you know, who, who, who is this for what is he trying to say what is he what is his purpose in making this sort of mm. pull out.
1: and did you say when this map is
2: produced when it's made yeah it is um
0: 1489 wow uh, wow that's fascinating i don't think i've ever really thought about kind of a map as a, sto- a storytelling mm. um though clearly that yeah so th-
2: it's a very interesting thing um and there yeah map of storytelling sort of trying to pull out what what's going on there and um, why why those choices so um yeah that's what I'm trying to figure out this is reminding me and I don't know if it's reminding
1: you of this Carrie but do you remember when um Ruchika gave the lecture about um, illuminated manuscripts and she was Pulling our eyes to these little—is it marginalia? Right, <laughs> With all the little, the little bunnies running through the the margins because uh, maybe the the scribe was perhaps a little bored or took a little creative license. And
2: then was it the Yoda figure in one of them that you showed us? Yeah, yeah. There, there's medieval Yoda. So a few years back, uh, a librarian at the British Library was cataloging manuscripts and found in the margins um, this little figure that looks just like Yoda. And so I always like to show medieval Yoda and say see, remember when Yoda says he's really that old? He really is that old. <laughs> yeah. That's um, so bad. Yeah, th- those are utterly fascinating. And yeah.
0: there, there's and the rabbits. There are so many
2: rabbits. Yeah, the killer rabbits. Yeah. So, so this is, you know, the Monty Python. Um, the whole Monty Python thing in the Holy Grail with the killer rabbit is actually a medieval reference. Um, because a couple of the pythons had, had um, degrees in medieval literature and history. And so that's actually a reference to all these really bizarre and vicious rabbits that you find in the margins of medieval manuscripts. And so, you know, they say, it's just a little rabbit. Well, you know, the whole thing there, um, where rabbits dragging people off and hitting them with cudgels and, and, uh, and so there's, there's some different theories about what's going on there, whether there's like a subversive message there or uh, in the margins or whether it's just like, like pure tribes boredom, tribes doodling. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fantastic. Well, and Rishika, I always am delighted to hear what is on your nightstand because I, I just, I can never predict What it what it
2: is? (laughs) What is on my nightstand right now? Um, So I just finished um, Once in Future Witches, which was pretty good and interesting. Um, Sort of wow, interesting mashup of sort of witchcraft and suffragettes, and yeah, it it, it was quite interesting. Was a it a run. novel? Yeah, a novel. Okay. Yeah. I um, see
1: Gary's writing that down.
2: Yes. <laughs> and, and what's
1: coming up? You just finished it. Do you have a book on the horizon as well?
2: Um, I haven't quite figured out what I'm reading. Oh, I know what else I read. Um, this was sort of interesting too. It was a retelling of Romeo and Juliet in 1920s Shanghai. Oh, Um, with rival gangs. I liked that one. That was very interesting.
1: Do you remember the title of that one? These Violent Delights. These Violent Delights. See, that's the one I will be writing
2: down. Because Of course, (laughs) I go for, (laughs) I go for, (laughs) Um, which is, of course, you know, a line from Romeo and Juliet. These Violent Delights have violent ends.
1: I feel like there's a theme to this podcast a little bit. In, in spite of our, I mean, I, I wasn't planning for that, but maybe because it's spring, I don't, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Rabbits love stories, Romeo and Juliet. Good gracious. Carrie, Violence.
0: Violence? <laughs> Carrie what's on your nightstand? Took- <laughs> um, so I'm still working through, um, Terry Pratchett's monstrous regiment, which is just getting better and better. More and more women are turning up in this regiment of, of warriors that have all disguised themselves as, as men. So mm. it's delightful. And then finally arrived the David Cressy, Agnes Boker's cat travesties and something in Tudor England. Um, so it's all about yeah, monstrous births, witchcraft, streaking monks, like nudist monks that were protesting fascinating stuff about just odd and um, transgressive things that happened in Tudor England um, that uh, Jen McNabb had recommended as an interesting book on witchcraft. So I'm in, I'm in chapter one, just started it.
1: That sounds fabulous. I have um, two books on my nightstand. I have the more serious book and then my um, fun book, The serious book is a history. It's Vagrants and Vagabonds, Poverty and Mobility in the Early American Republic by historian Kristen Obrassel-Kulfin. And I just started it, but she is looking at um, sort of the way that we control populations that don't have a home through law and how they maybe use the ability to change locations as an act of resistance. It's quite interesting so far, even though I'm just in the opening pages. And then I have been reading a Minnesota mystery author, William Kent Kruger, and I read his first two novels um, dealing with this half Anishinaabe um, kind of cop figure who investigates sort of local issues. And so the book I'm reading right now is Purgatory Ridge, and these books are all set kind of in Minnesota, northern Minnesota, around the reservation area. And so there's this sort of subtext of how white people and Native American peoples are interacting and mixing. And it's 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 a light read, and yet it's a great read. So I will recommend um, William Kent Kruger to folks out there. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Rushika. Always a delight talking to you and to our audience. You've been listening to
0: Focus Bethel.